Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 107, released on February 27th, 2019. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and do not miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. Today we are going to talk about multimodal mobility apps, about the attack on Facebook from the UK authorities, about hacking the blockchains and much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Ricardo Donadon, founder of HForum. I am your host, Andrew Daigler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik, and the founding editor of Tech.eu, Robin Wouters. We are recording this episode in Riga at the TechChill conference. It's the second day of the event, uh, and we are literally in the very middle of the first floor and in an aquarium uh, kind of thing, which has a really good soundproofing, just uh, looking at uh, the people passing by. So, Natalie, Robin, how has the event uh, been uh, so far for you? Well, I just got here yesterday and TechChill always puts on such an incredible event. And it's also a great experience taping this from where this box here, because the whole conference is happening around us and we're just in this quiet little space and it's really kind of excellent. Robin, did you like the first day? Very much so. I feel very exposed in this uh, fish tank environment. Um, no, really good. Uh, always enjoy coming back to the Baltics and TechChill is one of my favorite conferences in the year. So yeah, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I think in one of the interviews, I actually mentioned that uh, this is officially one of the favorite conferences of the Tech.eu team. Yes, so it's official. really it's really hard to focus on the actual tech news while the news are actually happening around you. But uh, let's uh, try and dive into what we have prepared for today. So, Natalie, what was the biggest deal of uh, the week that is about to pass? Yeah, so the biggest deal of the week so far has been from Yinsect, which is an insect farming startup, and they raised $125 million in a financing round led by Astinor Ventures. And insect farming is something that we mentioned previously on the podcast is a, a real strength in Europe. So if you're interested in that, we'll leave a link to in the show notes to our previous feature on this. So Natalie, you're a vegetarian, but uh, uh, do insects uh, count? They definitely count, and so I'm not in any hurry to eat them. But insect is is interesting in that they're farming insects for animal feed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fish mostly, as far as I understand, it's a uh, it's kind it's kind of cool. I mean, I I don't mind eating uh, insects though. I'm totally fine with that. What do you think, Robin? I only eat uh, insects uh, by accident, <laughs> never intentional. <laughs> but would would your cat eat insects, Andre? I'm pretty sure she wouldn't mind. I mean, she's very used to uh, dry food, but I'm pretty sure she wouldn't mind. Are we still talking about tech news? Yeah, ex yeah, abso <laughs> absolutely. This is a total, totally tech news, and uh, this, is, this is something that solves uh, one of the main uh, problems, uh, the sustainability issues that we have, and this is totally tech. It oh. is also very much like tech-powered, uh, robotic sort of form, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's a huge round of funding. Like, I, mean, I really wonder what they need all that money for. I generally wonder. Yeah, apparently more farms, more robots. I, I think they're just just expanding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's, a, it's a pretty cash-intensive uh, business, it seems. Apparently, yeah. And also, it's interesting that a lot of uh, this kind of stuff just goes under the radar. I, I've never heard of this uh, company before. I've never really looked at this industry and thought about uh, how big it could be. So it's 
It's quite interesting. Right, going uh, forward uh, towards uh, the other news of the weekend, whatever has happened so far, I wanted to talk about uh, multimodal mobility. And uh, they, there were two announcements uh, made uh, this week by different companies. So it seems to be uh, sort of a trend in Europe. Uh, so we have seen two stories. And uh, the main idea is uh, that uh, uh, this uh, multimodal apps uh, would give the customer one app uh, that can be used to plan, book, and pay for a uh, different uh, uh, transportation modes, be it uh, public transport or shared e-scooters or bikes uh, or uh, whatever there is. So first announcement I made this week is from Monday, and that was a Lithuanian startup called Traffi, and it announced that it's working with the main public transportation company in Berlin called BVG uh, to launch an app called Yelby. It will be available on Android and on iOS in the summer, and will have integrations with uh, public transport, uh, shared e-scooters, and uh, uh, bicycles, also with taxis and even car sharing platforms. But it's not live yet, so we're yet to see uh, whether it's going to live up to the promise. Well, but for now, there are already a few companies that have joined uh, the project. Those include a, a car sharing company called Miles, a scooter sharing company called Emmy, and mind you, this is like scooters as in mopeds, as in, as in uh, Vespas, not the poor scooters. Also, uh, next bike, so the bike sharing, and uh, uh, Berl Koenig, which is a ride-sharing app by BVG itself. So Traffy also told me that it will announce more partners uh, by the time the app is live, and I really wonder uh, whether the big uh, e-scooter providers uh, will uh, join and how it will work at the end, since usually uh, the e-scooter companies, they kind of require this uh, prepayment uh, for scooters on their app. You kind of buy credit, like 10 by 10 euros, uh, for example, and then you just spend it as you ride. So I'm not really sure how that's going to work, but I'm pretty sure they will uh, find a way. Now, the other news stories uh, in the same vein was about a city mapper, and that's a public transit app and mapping service that's uh, quite popular in uh, London. I've never used it myself, but I heard many times that it's uh, actually more accurate than anything else in planning routes uh, around the city. And this week, the company kind of went into the fintech space by offering a public transit subscription card. So it's kind of similar to an Oyster card, really. Uh, you can pay £30 a month and you get unlimited access to the buses and the tube within zone one and zone two uh, in London. And if you pay extra uh, 10 quid, uh, you also get unlimited Santander uh, bike rides and two rides a month on City Mapper's own ride uh, sharing service. I actually didn't know they had one. Apparently they do. So same as uh, traffic in Berlin, City Mapper plans to add more motor transportation, uh, like uh, dockless bikes and e-scooters in the future. Uh, but that's also going to be a bit problematic since e-scooters are, uh, are not really active in London because they're not really legal in in London at the moment, according to regulation, but that again uh, might change. So, City Mapper Pass will be live in March or April. But if you live in uh, cities uh, like Helsinki or Birmingham or Antwerp, you can already uh, try another multimodal mobility app called Wim. And this one has been available for a while, and it seems to be coming to Amsterdam as well. I saw announcement on the website, but it's not it's not live there yet. And it recently announced that it also will be expanding to the US. So, depending on the city, Wim has two or three uh, different plans. There is a free one where you just pay per ride on any transportation modes that are included in the app. And then there is the second one that's usually about 50 euros a month. And there you get some free rides, but also some discounts uh, on uh, uh, certain transportation. And then there is an unlimited one. And that's, I think, only active in Helsinki at the moment. Uh, for uh, 500 euros a month, uh, you get unlimited public transport tickets and uh, also unlimited taxi rides uh, within a five kilometer radius. It also says 
say that uh, you get unlimited car sharing, but I'm not sure you can get it for 500 euros. There must be there must be a catch or a fair usage policy or something like that. But it looks like a really interesting trend, I have to say, in urban mobility. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more startups uh, rushing into this uh, niche. And if you're already using one of the apps that I just mentioned or anything else of uh, the same idea, uh, let us know how, uh, how it is for you. Are you happy with it? Are you not happy with it? And Natalie, would you use, for example, one? Well, BVG in Berlin is one of the best public transport apps that I've used anywhere. So I'm definitely excited about this new offering from them. Um, and I think it, it has really great potential to be an awesome solution. Robin, do you take public transport often? Uh, almost daily. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. You, you live close to Metro, right? I live very close to the metro, just uh, recently moved, actually. And uh, uh, in actually in Brussels, they have a system where you can use uh, multiple modes of transportation on one card. It's sort of a card that you upload your subscriptions to. Expanding that to other means of transportation like e-scooters and whatnot makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, I just don't see it happening in Brussels very quickly, but well, I might be wrong. Right. Have you ridden an e-scooter in Brussels so far? Do you mean like a proper Vespa scooter? or the... No, 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 like the push scooter. I Literally the first time uh, last week on Friday, and I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And I'm going to do it more often. The only thing that bothers me is the cobblestones in Brussels. Oh, really, yeah. Really oh, annoying. Yeah. Other than that, really smooth experience. I'm going to do that more often. So, Robin, what what did you want to talk about today? Yeah, sorry, I'm hijacking your script here. But it, like I was reading TechU, <laughs> and I saw this very interesting story. While we're in the Baltics, there's a new VC fund. Uh, Nordic Ninja, it's called. Um, they've launched a 100 million euro fund just in partnership now with uh, Panasonic, Honda, Omron, and the Japan Bank for International Corporations to invest in startups and scale-ups in the Nordics and the Baltics right here. Um, and what's interesting to me about that is that the, I went to Estonia last month for Startup Day Fest, and I went to Latitude 59, and I've met quite a few people from Japan, from like different organizations, big companies. And it's sort of a, it's, it's a little bit below the radar, but these Japanese companies are investing rather heavily in this, not just the Estonian, but also the Finnish and the Swedish ecosystem. And that's something that I really want to dig into. And this is sort of a, one of the things that comes out of these collaborations, apparently. Uh, it's a new fund. They will write checks uh, from ranging from two to five million euros, uh, focus on mobility, AI, VR, IoT, sort of the hot uh, verticals of the moment. That's a really wide range, I have to say. Yeah, that's always the case, isn't it? They don't, they don't want to leave anything to chance, I guess. But what's interesting is that the fund will also work the other way around like the startups that are, are funded here uh, will also get to enter japan and other asian markets through the, the collaboration that they have uh, which i think is a very very interesting thing because we usually look uh, for cross-border expansion in europe or the us or latin america but we don't often hear of companies looking at asia first which i think is going to be a bit of a trend in the coming years that that's the first reflex, I think, for startups in Europe is going to be Asia rather than U.S. Well, it depends on depends on what they do, of course. But and I think the focus on Japan is really interesting here right now. The a, a big contingent from startup Estonia is actually not here at Tech Chill because they are at Slush in Tokyo right now. Right. So there's a big contingent of Estonian startups that are that are now um, in Japan. And the EU has just signed a new trade treaty with Japan. So I think it's a really natural fit, especially. All the time we're hearing a lot about China and the rise of China, but Japan is a really interesting place for European startups, and it seems that there are a number of synergies here. So I think this is a really exciting new venture. 
And it also works both ways, right? Because uh, uh, there was quite a presence uh, from uh, Japanese startups. Uh, for example, on uh, Slush uh, in December, they had the whole uh, pavilion. They brought seven or eight uh, uh, companies uh, with them, and they're really interested in expanding into Europe and uh, working with uh, with partners here. So th th there is definitely more collaboration between uh, uh, Japan and Europe on innovation and startups there, there, than there used to be. So I vote for every single time we talk about Brexit, we talk about the opposite which is we're getting closer to japan uh, as the eu so perfect <laughs> good and bad sides to everything that sounds great great well thank you so much robin for joining us today yes i'm sorry i need to run but always a pleasure to actually see you guys in person and sit down into this podcast live so much fun thank you so much for having me so hopefully we'll see each other soon and now we're gonna let you go and uh, continue with the stories thank you Okay, we are back to our podcast and uh, it is, uh, Natalie, your turn to talk about uh, what uh, happened to Facebook in the UK this week. Yeah, so I titled this segment, The UK Goes Gangster on Facebook. Um, and there are a number of really frustrating things about living in the UK politics-wise at the moment. But something I'm really proud of is their effort to critique the tech giants. And this week, well, last week, as you're hearing this podcast, the British government has published the results of an investigation into Facebook, a process that took 18 months to complete. So while there are a number of different aspects about Facebook you could critique, this investigation particularly looks specifically at disinformation and fake news. What they found is possibly unsurprising to anyone who is a user of these platforms. And here I'll read you a portion, and I quote, Among the countless innocuous postings of celebrations and holiday snaps, some malicious forces use Facebook to threaten and harass others, to publish revenge porn, to disseminate hate speech and propaganda of all kinds, and to influence elections and democratic processes, much of which Facebook and other social media companies are either unable or unwilling to prevent. We need to apply widely accepted democratic principles to ensure their application in the digital age. End quote. So the investigation found that Facebook, probably unsurprisingly, seemed unwilling to be regulated or scrutinized. This investigation, you might recall, they asked repeatedly for Mark Zuckerberg to testify in person, which he continually turned down. So this process went on for 18 months, and they called him several times. And this move was one that the investigation really didn't like. And their response from their report, I'll quote, by choosing not to appear before the committee and by choosing not to respond personally to any of our invitations, Mark Zuckerberg has shown contempt towards both the UK Parliament and the international Grand Committee involving members of nine legislatures from around the world. This phrase appears in curious, bold print in the report, highlighting <laughs> the severity of this. So you'll be reading the, the report, and then there's this really bold statement about Mark Zuckerberg's behavior, which really stands out. Um, and they uniquely contrasted this with a piece from about um, Rupert Murdoch, um, who's Australian. He, they, he actually came and testified um, for a different matter in, in his business, and they highlighted, well, you have even really powerful people from outside the UK testifying regularly so what's up with Mark Zuckerberg? So reading the report, you can really respect the great research that's been done here. Um, the committee has put together something really impressive. Um, and the, the scale of the report is really incredible. But what do they hope will come out of this investigation? Ultimately, they argue there needs to be greater transparency in the political sphere and how companies like this operate. And so that platforms such as Facebook need to take more responsibility. 
So how do they suggest that we do this? Well, first, they're calling for a compulsory code of ethics for tech companies that are overseen by an independent body. So this independent body should also be given powers to launch legal action if companies breach the code. Next, it calls on the UK government to reform electoral laws and rules on overseas involvement in UK elections. Currently, UK law doesn't really have enough power to prevent some of the activities um, that were happening around the Brexit referendum, for example, from happening again. Then it calls for social media companies to take down sources of harmful content. So similarly to how Germany's disinformation law works, and that's been very successful. And next, the tech companies that are operating in the UK, they call for them to be taxed, that those taxes will be used to support the work that's being done to oversee them. And that's like 2% tax, I think. Yeah, um, so it could potentially be a lot of a lot of money, and, and you can imagine yeah, quite a bit. the the cost of putting together this investigation must have been really incredible. So overall, it calls for a number of different things, and some things that the UK has the ability of doing unilaterally, such as bringing their regulations on fake news and disinformation in line with Germany's. Something that you, the report uniquely mentions as being a very effective strategy. But other parts of their recommendations, such as the development of independent ethics body to help regulate and hold platforms accountable, it seems kind of unclear how this entity would develop. How would you get companies to abide by a compulsory code of ethics and just give up regulatory power to an independent body? The committee suggested the code similar to the UK's broadcasting code, but this code is regulated by the government's Office of Communications. So maybe another way to think about it would be a code of ethics such as a licensing body, um, kind of how doctors abide by a Hippocratic oath. And the British Medical Association has a, has an instance where licenses to operate could be revoked for non-compliance. But still, the question really remains about how you would get tech companies to comply with this sort of thing and give up some of their regulatory power to an entity. And I just don't think we're likely to see this happen until a government really compels the companies to do so. I can totally imagine uh, Zuckerberg, uh, given uh, given the oath uh, and promising that he's going to do no harm uh, with uh, with Facebook. Yeah, and and that's kind of kind of what I see as well. And ultimately, what I think Facebook's response, you can kind of expect what it would be. And I want to quote from the report again: "Quote: Facebook has continually hidden behind obfuscation. The sealed documents contained internal emails revealing the fact that Facebook's profit comes before anything else." When they're exposed, Facebook is always sorry, and they were always on a journey. Wow, that's quote. great. This is, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's also my recommendation for the week. Reading the report, and you would think, oh, kind of a stodgy government report would be boring, but this was absolutely fascinating. And in the show notes, we will link to the report by the Culture, Media, and Sport Committee, as well as a BBC article that kind of talks a little bit about some of the implications of this. And they're really good reads on this topic, and I encourage you to have a look at them. The BBC article, for instance, brings up that when the interim results of the report were first published, it curiously gained most of its internet traffic from Russian IP addresses. So you can kind of put two and two together here. 
The report also gives so much insight into Facebook's strategy and business model, and it really reminded me in some ways of Bad Blood, the book by John Carreyou um, about Theranos. And it's a great read. It's a long read. It's easy to kind of jump through um, the different links, but it's so insightful, and some of the things they pull out on this company are just fascinating. Do you think there's going to be a book on Facebook? Oh, there definitely is. And I know um, John Constantine from TechCrunch, I think, is actually working on one at the moment. Right. So I'll be really looking forward to seeing that when it comes out, of course. So once again, is there any time frame on this? Are they do, going to do anything in particular with Facebook in any foreseeable future? Well, they've said that they are going to continue to kind of raise these issues. And the UK government, of course, they're very kind of tied up in some other sort of legislative dealings at the moment. So I'm not sure how quickly they'll be able to to act on this, but it's something that they expressly will continue to raise. Um, and you can really, if you're reading between the lines on the report, you can just kind of sense the anger and frustration that this body has with Facebook. And the fact that the impact of the disinformation shared on their platform was used in such a malicious way. You can really get such a strong sense of that. So I don't think they're going to let this go easily. And even when they're, when they're out of the EU, I think it's something they're going to continue to push very hard. Yeah, I guess this is something that uh, the EU also should be looking at and maybe taking uh, certain lessons from. Definitely. Right. It is uh, time for an interview of the day, and uh, this is going to be the one uh, with Ricardo Donadon, the founder of uh, H-Farm, uh, recorded by uh, Robin. So let's check it out and be back in a few minutes. Hey, this is Robin Walters from Tech.eu, and I'm here in the Venice area, I should say, uh, visiting H-Farm. And I have uh, the founder, one of the founders, uh, Ricardo, here with me, uh, who's going to explain a little bit about the basics. Uh, so tell me, the basics, what is H-Farm? H-Farm is a platform, an innovation platform. Um, I found H-Farm uh, in 2005. Um, I started to work in this sector, in technology sector, in uh, 1995. I made two things that gone uh, very well. And uh, when I finished in 2003, I believe that uh, it's time to make a sort of giving back and help a young generation to achieve the opportunity that uh, are um, uh, starting on the digital field. So in 2005, uh, we found uh, H-Farm. Uh, Maurizio, that is my partner in business, uh, joined me very fast. And uh, in the first 10 years, uh, our focus was completely uh, on uh, startup, uh, on uh, incubation, acceleration, uh, and we tried to bring in Italy something that uh, we believe that uh, was uh, exploding uh, in um, US and in other parts of the world. And we tried to focus uh, our effort to stimulate new entrepreneur. Uh, in the first uh, four years, uh, we invested uh, around uh, five million, and um, it was uh, immediately successful because we sold uh, in 2009 and 2010 two of uh, the first uh, initiative. The first one that we incorporated, the name was uh, HCare, and was a sort of a uh, 
a digital assistant platform for customer care. And we sold it to an important player that made a CRM solution for big players like Vodafone and other, other partners like them. Uh, the second one was a web agency that we sold to WPP. And WPP acquired uh, in 2009 and then moved under the umbrella of AKQA. Now is uh, the office, the branch office of AKQA in Italy. And uh, was super successful because uh, it grew up very, very fast and now is going very, very well. So is it safe to say that the first um, 10 years of H Farm were mostly about um, startup investments, like building a portfolio? Uh, one of the first venture incubators really in the world, I, I would say. Yeah. But then 10 years later in 2015, the focus uh, shifted. You also became a publicly listed company. So can you elaborate on the changes? Yeah, because uh, it was very difficult to do that uh, in Italy because the ecosystem is not so mature to uh, understand what we are doing. In uh, 2012, I worked with the government to set up the new rules and I understood and I understood in that period that it uh, was very difficult uh, to continue to incorporate new companies and wait uh, that uh, uh, some big players from uh, abroad or from the internal market arrive to acquire this company. So we go a little bit slow down in this uh, uh, stream and we started to, uh, with uh, the IPO, uh, two new pillars. One is uh, education because we believe that uh, the way to help the, uh, the market, the Italian market, uh, to grow up uh, probably is uh, to educate the young generation uh, to the opportunities uh, and uh, in the right way to address the new opportunities. And uh, in uh, education, uh, we invest uh, in three uh, different streams. One is uh, international school. We bought uh, uh, four international schools. Now we have uh, around uh, 882 students from uh, early years to um, diploma program. Is uh, an international school in English, but uh, augmented to digital. And uh, I believe that is something that uh, is completely new in the market uh, and uh, in the future probably will become uh, the right way in the education uh, market uh, for uh, young students. The second stream is a bachelor program uh, at university. Uh, we are the first course in Italy on uh, digital management, the first one in the class of management. And uh, it's very successful. There is a lot of uh, requests. Uh, we don't have uh, too much seats for this uh, uh, course, but uh, we believe that uh, uh, we can grow up with the new buildings that uh, we are uh, planning in the next month. The third one is a, a vocational path uh, specialized on uh, uh, computer graphics and virtual reality, uh, augmented reality and uh, concept art. And uh, it's going very well. The name is Big Rock School. And uh, we believe that uh, in the future we can uh, add some other schools that are focused on these kind of things. The main uh, 
pillar that we had on the stream of age farming in 2015 uh, was the consultancy uh, area. This is uh, the the main part uh, now of the business of age farm because uh, last year we closed around uh, 56 uh, million of revenues and we are profit uh, uh, for the consultancy area because it's the most important uh, contributors uh, in terms of uh, EBITDA positive uh, on the age farm project. In this area, we are around uh, 320 uh, people and uh, it's growing up very fast. Uh, we are working for uh, big customers like uh, um, LOMH, uh, Caring Group, uh, Enkel, uh, Adidas, uh, Luxotica and many others. A big company in Italy. So basically, the three pillars now are you still make investments in startups, but it's also the educational part and industry, basically consultancy for, for corporates. Um, super interesting. Two questions that I have. Uh, one is about Age Campus, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but the other one was uh, international ambition, because you mentioned Italy quite a few times. It seems to me that the model that you have would work well anywhere. Um, so yeah. I was wondering, do you have any international ambitions to scale this up? Yeah, um, H Campus uh, probably is the most important project that we have now because uh, when we will finish uh, to set up uh, this uh, new part of H Farm, uh, we'll be very clear uh, what we can do outside of Italy, outside outside of uh, our region, because uh, in the in this new building we will uh, host uh, in the same place uh, the education uh, with the consultant and with the innovation with the young generation that made a new new venture, new startups. And we believe that, that there is a, a lot of opportunity on the mix of these three things uh, in the same place because uh, the young generation can uh, uh, learn a lot of things from the new beast, uh, from the startups. Uh, and the business uh, is very interesting to stay very close to the new ideas, new startups, and they have a, a, an important interest in front of the new generation that tomorrow will work for them in this kind of field. I find this very, very interesting. And I've, I've looked at the plans that you have for each campus. Um, it's difficult to describe even how beautiful and <laughs> how wonderful uh, it already is, but it's also quite extraordinary how ambitious your plans are to turn, you know, Age Campus into into a platform. Final question: What's your thoughts on the Italian startup ecosystem these days? Um, because I know it's going through changes. Uh, it's still relatively small relative to to the size of the economy of Italy, at least. Um, so I'm wondering, as an insider, what do you see happening here in the local tech scene? I believe that uh, we are working well. There is a few operators, but uh, they are full of passion. Uh, they are they want to do the best. Um, we are uh, a little bit uh, in um, in too many places uh, because uh, in Italy uh, we don't have a. a an only place where uh, these kind of things happen. So you have um, Milano, Milan, Rome, uh, Florence, uh, Venice, uh, uh, Turin, uh, uh, Bologna. There is too much place uh, where uh, these kind of things uh, uh, happen. And uh, 
is not uh, useful to aggregate in one place the talents and the experience and the mistake and everything that you must do when you uh, try to grow up a sector uh, that uh, work around innovation. But uh, if you look in another way, this is the richness of uh, Italy because in Italy you have uh, many districts uh, with uh, some excellence uh, that uh, have a uh, vertical uh, specialization. So uh, this uh, scenario that is uh, fragmented uh, can uh, work uh, with uh, many, many actors and uh, implement uh, solutions that are completely different. Uh, so this is very typical of Italy that is uh, rich of idea, creativity, and the fear rouge probably is the, the, the attention that we have uh, around uh, design, uh, the style, uh, and the UX interface uh, that is typical of Italy. Um, it's sort of funny because the way that you describe it reminds me a lot of Europe in general, where there's a lot of fragmentation as well in startup hubs. Uh, but there are sort of a, there's an emergence of uh, excellent centers, like certain areas that are really starting to specialize in, in certain uh, verticals. Don't want to take more of your time. Um, I wish you all the best with H Campus. I, I hope you get the green light from the government very soon uh, so you can start building. And I'm, I'd be very happy to come back when, when it's finished. Uh, but best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast of uh, Tech.eu, episode number 107. So we had Robin with us today. Unfortunately, he had to leave for a meeting. We are recording here at uh, Tech Chill in the middle of the ground floor of the conference itself with lots of people moving around us. I will post a photo uh, in the uh, in the show notes, uh, definitely. And it is time to move on towards the uh, recommendation part. And Natalie, you have already mentioned your recommendation. That's the great... Uh, a nicely written text uh, from uh, from the UK authorities. And uh, mine is a piece on uh, MIT Technology Review about the hackability of uh, blockchains. I mean, I don't, I'm not really that fond of blockchain in general, uh, to put it mildly. That's but, an understatement. <laughs> but I do, I do read uh, uh, things about it. I'm, I mean, I'm interested in it. It, it. it is interesting. It is fascinating. I just don't uh, see any particular use and I do not like the hype uh, that has uh, uh, come up about it over the past a couple of years. But so the interesting thing is that at the beginning of that uh, hype cycle, if you will, of uh, blockchain, it was one of the main marketing mantras of the protocol that it is impossible to hack a blockchain uh, due to its decentralized nature, first of all, and it makes it incredibly secure and so on and so forth. So it's kind of true still, uh, but not entirely, it turns out. So there seem to be more and more attacks on uh, blockchains. And generally, these attacks, as far as I understand from this piece, uh, they come in two uh, different uh, flavors. Uh, first one is uh, the so-called uh, 51% rule, and which means that if you control 51% of the mining power on a blockchain, you can fork it. Uh, which would effectively double, which would effectively allow you uh, to double spend uh, crypto, the cryptocurrency in question. Uh, so for Bitcoin and other well-established uh, uh, blockchain uh, blockchains, it would it would be very expensive, of course. But for cheaper ones, it is affordable and it appears to be quite profitable. There are uh, tens of millions uh, uh, stolen in uh, cryptocurrency uh, just in this way. There is even a website. I think it's called uh, Crypto Fifty One. 
it shows in real time uh, the cost of uh, one hour of uh, uh, a 51% attack on any uh, crypto coin. So like I think today in the morning, uh, the cost for a Bitcoin was like $270,000 for, for, for an hour of attack. So it basically makes little economic sense as far as I understand. But generally it is possible. And the other sort of attacks that uh, have emerged uh, recently is uh, the smart contracts themselves. Turns out they are not necessarily as smart as uh, they might seem and in many cases there are bugs in them and uh, those allow all sorts of uh, attacks and exploits uh, and uh, malicious code uh, being inserted and all that kind of thing and these bugs have also already led to tens of millions of dollars in losses uh, for people for companies uh, uh, for everybody holding uh, those uh, those coins and uh, uh, tying them in the smart contract so if you're interested in crypto and blockchain and security uh, check this one out it really explains the things really well and you don't need to have a lot of uh, previous bitcoin knowledge and crypto knowledge to understand how this whole thing works but when Natalie, i never asked uh, do you hold any crypto cryptocurrencies i don't hold any cryptocurrencies but i think this vulnerability of smart contracts is something that is really important to look into so a couple months ago i was at an event held by the law society of scotland and it kind of brought together tech people with lawyers and judges and one of the kind of always the critiques that the tech people were saying we're well we're gonna disrupt a lot of legal work because our smart contracts they can't be hacked they can't um be contested and um there there is there is no way that that we'll be able to um kind of get around them in the future and of course the the law professionals were always saying well there isn't ever going to be a contract that's so smart that it's not going to be hackable so i think this is a really important point to, to kind of pause and think about really what kind of vulnerabilities are are there it's like it's interesting it's just different sort of hacking right it's it's not it's not like you're picking a lock it's more like you look at the lock really closely and understand uh, what can be uh, used instead of the key in order to either open it or make it do something that it was not supposed to. I mean, it's it's just the code, right? It's always the code and uh, where there is code, there definitely might be bugs or uh, some uh, omissions or whatever there is. And uh, it was, I think, a matter of time really uh, for for something uh, something like this to uh, to surface. Now, I guess this is time for us to wrap it up. This is it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it at least as much as uh, we have enjoyed uh, uh, this uh, conference. We're recording it on uh, TechChill 2019. We are about to uh, move uh, towards um, talks uh, and uh, listen more on this uh, second day of the event. Now, don't miss new episodes of the podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify and SoundCloud and iTunes. Just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, this will help others uh, find the podcast and will mean a lot for ourselves. Uh, tell everyone you know about the podcast if it is relevant for them and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU, tweeting 24 hours a day and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at uh, Andri at tech.eu, Natalie at tech.eu and uh, guess what, Robin at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Andre. And just a word out to our listeners. If you were one of the people at TechChill that was taking pictures of us in this aquarium box, please tweet them at us because it feels fun being a celebrity for a few minutes. <laughs> I, I, I feel like a, like a golden fish already. <laughs> anyway, enjoy the rest of your week and we are going to talk to you next Wednesday. Pleasure to see you today, Natalie. Mm-hmm.
Bye. Bye. Bye.